For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you after being away for a couple of weeks on vacation, and you know, you got to use it or lose it, and I tend to lose it and not get to use it so much, so it was, uh, it was nice to be up in uh, Pennsylvania with my wife's extended family, and we celebrated my father-in-law's retirement from ministry of, after 56 years of being in the ministry and just had a, a great time, and then everybody caught COVID, uh, except for me, apparently, so, or I'm patient zero. I'm not real sure. I'm either patient zero or I didn't catch it, but all the negative, all the testing kept coming back negative, but the entire fa- extended family all got COVID uh, over vacation, so I, I sat inside a lot, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, but it's okay, because it was cold up there. It's like those people have not heard of Florida, apparently. So, uh, I, I, you know, we have been in the book of Acts since uh, the 1st of September. It's, we're going through this series of messages called Transitions, because we're at a church in transition, and the book of Acts is all about transitions. And we're going to return to Acts uh, next week. Uh, Randy Pope, Dr. Randy Pope, is going to be with us. You know, he comes down uh, on in January uh, for the last many years, and he takes a little vacation, and when he comes, we hang out together, and, and he is gracious enough to to uh, bring the Word of God to us. And so he's going to bring us back to the book of Acts, picking up in chapter 6 next week. This morning, I want to do something like I'd like to do at the beginning almost of every semester, whether it's the beginning of the, of the ministry year in August or here in January, and just take a message to kind of refocus us to make sure that we are squared away and on the same page as it comes to our vision and mission and, and what we're doing as a church and why we're doing it. And that sometimes takes different forms. It might be a message on uh, getting connected to a small group, like you heard uh, Andrea just talking about a few moments ago, or it might be a message on worship and why we worship a certain way and and how we worship. This morning, um, I want us to revisit our church's mission. Read it with me this morning out loud. Ready? Here we go. Bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. Our church's mission. What are we doing? We are bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. And this mission is expressed in many ways throughout the paradigm of our church and our church ministry plan. You'll see it, for example, in our values. When we think about church planting and spreading the gospel through missions and through personal evangelism and through mercy ministry, uh, you'll see it in the vision of our church, our 50 by our 50th, as we are going to be a 50 years old as a church in 2028, and we seek to plant, help plant 50 new churches with many of those in our own backyard in that time frame, and we're well on the way of reaching that goal and seeing 50 stories of gospel restoration 
happen in the lives of people who were broken and in bondage to sin. And 50 of our children led to Christ by their parents and 50 adults that we lead to Christ as Christians sharing the gospel with those that we know. So you find this mission in our vision, in our values. You find it in our ministry pathway. You know, we do worship the way we do in part and preach and teach as we do from the stage because we recognize that this is an opportunity every week for each of us to experience gospel restoration because we need gospel restoration. It's our broken world, and we have these deep needs created by sin in our own lives. And so, we have to experience gospel restoration. And then as we go along that ministry pathway, we reach out to others in our city, in our community. We engage our culture so that they too can experience gospel restoration. And so this is what we are about in our church. And our mission statement assumes that we agree on a, a fundamental truth of the Bible that is underlying our text this morning. It's something that I want to make sure that you understand and that you get, and hopefully that you believe that God has called each of us to be on mission for Him, engaging the various cultures in which He's placed us. Right? He has placed us in many different cultures, if you think about it. You have a, if you work in a company or a, a, a job in the, in the city, you have a distinct culture within that job place, that marketplace. You have a culture within your family, your immediate family. And then you have a culture in your extended family, and sometimes that can be pretty whacked out, can it? <laughs> Uh, you have a culture in the community in which you live. In our city, we have a culture, and there's that broader idea of culture that we are engaging with in many different ways and mechanisms within our society. And God has called each of us to be on mission for Him as we live and we interact and we engage in these various cultures. Our mission statement is picking up on this. If you think about it, our mission statement is simply the great commission that Jesus gives to the disciples, but it's been contextualized for our church culture and the culture in which we live. That's what our mission statement is all about. It's engaging the culture with the good news of Jesus Christ and bringing gospel restoration to it. Now, for many of us, uh, and we don't, I don't think we necessarily want to, but for different reasons, rather than engaging the culture with gospel restoration, with the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, we evade it. <laughs> we don't engage, we evade. And there's, uh, there's a lot of reasons behind this. I've, I've done it. I did it recently. I, I mean, it just seemed like when I look back on it, God had teed up the perfect opportunity for me to, to share the gospel with an individual and to go there with that person, and I changed the topic. I, don't, I, I realized, I looked back, I said, what, what happened? What, wait, wait a second. I missed it, right? I missed it. I, I saw it later that it was there, but not at the moment. Why? Because I, I know that, you know, sometimes it can be because of fear, but sometimes it's just that you, you aren't looking for those opportunities that God puts before us. And, and so we need his help. We need that filling of the Holy Spirit to, to give us eyes that can see what he's doing in the lives of people that we're interacting with. And that we're always ready to give that answer for the good news that we have. 
Sometimes we evade because we're just blind. Maybe it's because we're not where we're supposed to be spiritually and we're in a spiritual malaise. Sometimes it's simply because we're afraid or, you know, we're under a satanic type of attack that, you know, blocks us from, there's all kinds of reasons why we don't engage, but we evade. Even worse is when we don't evade, we instead we enrage (laughs) instead of engaging the culture, right? Sometimes we do that, and that, that kind of creates a stumbling block to people, and this is why we have to be so careful that we aren't, you know, manipulating or that we aren't elevating uh, our, what we believe with politics to the gospel because the messages can get consumed and they can get equated with one another. And as a result, we enrage the very people that we need to bring gospel restoration to. But I know our church. I know at least most some of you are, are newer faces. I don't know you well yet, but most of you I know, I think very, very well. And I think I know you well enough and I've seen the fruits of your lives to confidently state that it's not your desire to enrage or evade, but you want to embrace the mission of bringing gospel restoration. That's what I love about our church. This is important to us. It's important to you, and you prove it a number of ways. And since you want to embrace this calling from God, and you want to embrace this culture, this passage is good for us to look at because it gives us several gospel applications as we think about engaging the culture with the good news of Christ. The very first thing that I want us to see is from the passage is that when we are engaging the culture, it's crucial that we contextualize the gospel. And that's a mouthful. Um, in, in fact, to, it's interesting in Christianity, especially conservative Christianity, as I read articles and I listen to things, and, and if you're new to our church, we are a conservative, Bible-believing Christian church, okay, in the Reformed tradition. And, and so we, we very tightly hold on to God's Word, Sola Scriptura. It centers everything that we do. And in our tradition and in our circles that we tend to hang out in, It's interesting how the word contextualization has almost become a dirty word. And I think the reason why is because of what it's been attached to in maybe other expressions of Christianity. And and it's been used almost as justification, it seems like, for disregarding the Scriptures or doing your own thing or disobeying the Scriptures or compromising. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But contextualizing the gospel is not a dirty word. Contextualization is all about finding common ground with those who need Jesus and then deciphering the best way to bring him to their deepest needs. It's about deciphering the best way to bring Jesus and the good news of the gospel to our broken world and finding common ground with those who need it. That's what contextualization is all about. Let me, let me read this passage of scripture from a different translation. Eugene Peterson in his his, uh, translation, The Message, really, I think, gets this idea of contextualizing the gospel. Listen to how this passage reads in a a more modern language approach. It says, even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious non-religious, meticulous moralist, loose-living immoralist, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. 
I, don't, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. Did you catch that? I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. This is what it means to contextualize the gospel. An easy way for us to think about it is we look at the life issues that are consuming the people that we interact with in the various cultures in which we live, and we try to determine how do we bring the truth of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ to that particular issue that is causing angst and concern and anxiety or whatever it may be. This is a, an easy way to understand how do I contextualize the gospel. So you think about the cultures in which you live and, and interact, your, your work culture. People are often consumed with wanting a deeper purpose in life beyond just punching a clock and taking in a paycheck. The gospel answers that question. Our, our culture is consumed with things like sex and identity and, and what is your identity and finding an identity that is true to yourself. And the gospel tells us what our identity is and how it can be and should be through Jesus Christ. It redeems sex and shows how it can work and is supposed to work in a healthy way within marriage. Our culture is torn apart by issues like racism and poverty and injustice. The, the gospel is filled with the answers for race and the sins that are associated with racism and poverty and injustice and all these things that are a part of our culture right now. The gospel answers these fundamental needs. So practically speaking, Contextualization is bringing gospel restoration to our broken world with methods that adapt to the ever-changing world in which we live. And that's what makes it so hard. <laughs> that's what makes it so hard. Because we are creatures of habit. We, we will naturally take the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance is to not change, to not adapt. It's easier to hold on to something that was done last year, last decade, back in the 1600s, whatever it may be in Christian circles, than it is to decipher our culture and how do we now bring the message of Jesus Christ to the cultures in which we live. It's much easier to just keep doing what I've always done and not change. In fact, this is so tempting that it's interesting in, in Christian circles, especially maybe in churches, um, we will begin to take a contextualization and we will clothe it with biblical language and biblical jargon and we sanctify the contextualization and it becomes a, a category of the gospel. 
So you know what we do is we confuse contextualization and the convictions that it, the contextualization is supposed to be serving. And they get elevated to the same level. And then as a result, churches begin to struggle and Christians become non-effective. So this is a, there's a second gospel application here from this passage. We can't allow that to happen. We must not allow today's contextualization to become tomorrow's conviction. Verse 22 says, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. If there's one word that kind of summarizes Paul's philosophy, it's flexibility. I mean, look at that. If, if they were weak, if they were somebody who was, in other words, completely uh, un, irreligious, doesn't know beans about God and the word of God and the gospel, he entered into their world and became like them so that he could associate and communicate the gospel at a level that was understandable to them and meant something to them. And he did the same thing to those who were very religious. He did it in a way for the Jews and how he interacted with the Gentiles was actually different. He, he changed his methods and his approaches. He contextualized the community, the gospel to the community in which he was acting. And this is important for us as a church because it's very easy at the corporate level for contextualization to become equated with our convictions. And we have to maintain a, a separation there. Convictions are different than contextualization. Listen, a conviction, these are, these are truths that we take from the Bible that are clear, that we hold on to tightly. So for example, the reason why this morning you are hearing a sermon and not a TED talk <laughs> is because we have a conviction that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the preaching and proclamation of God's word. This is what the scriptures teach us and say blatantly. We have a conviction that when we gather together, we are to submit ourselves to God's word. When we gather together, it's not about us and our feelings. It's about worshiping the great God who loves us and gave his son for us. And so we have a conviction that when we gather together from the scriptures, we are to sing and we are to pray together. We're to rejoice together. We're to take the sacraments together, the Lord's Supper, and, and enjoy it as we'll do next week. And we, to, we baptize those who are coming into the covenant family of God. And, and there are these things that we do when we gather together and we don't do it because somebody in a back room just thought it up. It's because the Bible tells us that this is who we are and what we are to be engaged in. There's a conviction here that we are to spread the gospel. At the, at the personal level, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And at the corporate level, we are to be about planting churches that are in themselves proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. These are convictions. And we hold on to these things. We engage with the, the lost and the hurting and the downtrodden and the defeated in our community. Why? Not so that we feel good about ourselves, but because the gospel teaches us that God is a God of mercy and he loves the widow and the orphan and the downtrodden and that true faith and religion looks at these people as our brothers and sisters who need gospel restoration. 
And we go out to them and we reach out to them and we love them the way we've been loved by Jesus. These are convictions. Contextualization are the forms and the methods and the expressions that we adopt in harmony with our culture to enact those convictions, okay? We have default contextualization. Contextualization is not a bad, a dirty word. So for example, you'll notice this morning that when Andrea read the scriptures, it was not in Koine Greek, the way Paul wrote it. It was in an English translation. Aren't you glad about that? We have a default contextualization. We have air conditioning this morning. Everybody say amen. amen. That's right. We have a default contextualization. We play, we did not play with the lute and lyre this morning, did we? We didn't sing to the lute like the Jews did and the Hebrews did in the time of Paul, right? We didn't, we didn't have the little three-stringed, funky-looking, you know, I think that's the lyre, right? You know, I always think of a kind of, you know, anyway, going on. You get the idea, Right? We play the guitar, kind of looks like it, but it's different. We, we have default contextualizations. We play different musical instruments. We sang different songs than were sung in the first century. Same truths are expressed in those songs, but they're different songs, and they're done in a different way. And we use technology. We're using it right now with the microphone, even though I probably don't need it, Right? I noticed, some of you came close, but I noticed that none of you were dancing during our worship service like the Jews would dance in their worship services. And at the end of the service, if you greet one another with a holy kiss, you're likely to get punched, right? We have our own default contextualization that is different than even the times of the Bible. But do we greet one another? Of course we do, but it's with a handshake or a fist bump or now a chicken wing because of COVID, whatever, but we just don't kiss each other on the cheek. There are other cultures that do that still, right? That's their normal culture. So we have, by default, a contextualization. I'm thankful for it. I don't like wearing suits. <laughs> I started out my ministry 30-something years ago, and if you didn't preach in a suit, then you weren't a Christian. Right? I remember when I came here, I had somebody, uh, the first time I came and didn't wear a, a, a coat and tie. Man, did he light me up. It's like my sermon was now illegitimate because I wasn't wearing a suit. Um, got newsflash, don't intend to go back to him. Right? We change because the culture around us changes. Contextualization, how we express the conviction changes. Right? But the convictions don't change. The message doesn't change. The methods do change. But the issue for Christians is that we get comfortable with a particular contextualization and never want to change it. And we'll go so far as to dress it up with you know, words from the scripture and make it the way that you must fill in the blank, worship, or pray, or preach, or sing, or evangelize. 
And so there are those, God love them, that at least they're doing something. But to this very day, their, their form of evangelism is what was learned in 1960s and 70s. And when you ask them, how's that going for you? It's not. Because the expressions have changed. See, we codify, we sanctify past methods, and they end up taking on the same weight as the principles that they're meant to serve. And they become subcategories of the gospel. And as a result, we become less effective for the kingdom of God. Ed Stetzer wrote a book many years ago on contextualization, and I remember an example that he gave. It's either in the book or a seminar that I can't remember now. It's been too many years. But he said, let's imagine this hand is the gospel. This is conviction. This is biblical truth right here in this hand. And this hand is contextualization, right? So here's what happens. When, when you have a, a, a tight fist around the gospel and a tight fist around your contextualization, your methods, your philosophies, your ministry enactment and plans, these two things end up clashing with one another instead of serving one another said some churches make this mistake. They are free with the truth, but they hold on tightly to their methods and they become basically liberal and married to what happened in the past. We do it, we've done it like this for 50 years. We've always done this, but they don't, they'll, they'll give up the virgin birth of Christ. This is what happens in liberal churches, right? And, and, and other churches, it's this, it's wah, right? And anything goes, and any belief can enter into the church, and any type of method or idea or practice is free game. Everything is green light, including what you actually believe. Stetzer said the way it's supposed to be is like this. We hold on tightly to the message and we give and we lo are loose with our contextualization because the contextualization supports what must be held on to tightly. And if you go like this, or like this, or like this, you're gonna have problems as a church and as a Christian. Say so, a final application from this passage this morning. Our culture needs to see and hear from us a winsomely faithful proclamation of the gospel. We didn't read the verses, but right before the passage that was read, Paul says in verse 16, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach, if I do not proclaim, communicate the gospel. And then he says in verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But then he puts in parentheses, notice very carefully, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. It's clear that the Apostle Paul took this idea of winning people to Christ, as many as possible, seriously. This was a part of his mission as, a, as an apostle, and yet he did it in a way that honored God. He winsomely and he faithfully engaged the culture in order to further the gospel. In fact, the gospel, this was so important to him, right, 
that in his, that word, 90% of the time in the New Testament, the word gospel is used, it's used by the Apostle Paul or by his close associates like Luke in the book of Acts. So when we come to, for example, Romans chapter 1, we understand why this was the case. He says, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. If we truly believe that last verse... That the gospel is the power of God to bring men to salvation, that it's their very hope of eternal life, then we must not water down and compromise the message of the gospel. We can't do that. That's why it has to be a conviction held on too tightly. That's why it has to be at the center of everything we do. Because the power of God is not through the contextualization. The power of God is in the gospel itself. And that never changes. Because Jesus Christ is the gospel and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that doesn't change, church. We can't afford to ever compromise the message. And there will be times when you and we as a church endeavor to be as winsome and graceful as we possibly can as we proclaim the gospel and contend for the gospel and it's still going to enrage the culture. It's still going to happen. But let's just ensure that if the culture or the people we interact with get mad, it's not because of how we are living and how we are communicating and how we are loving and how we are welcoming them and how we are interacting with them. If they get mad, let it be at the truth of the gospel. Let that be the stumbling block. And it will be a stumbling block. Let it not be us that are the stumbling block. Do you see that distinction? Because too often, I've seen it in my own life, where my pride, my arrogance, my, my belief about the truth of God's word, that becomes a, a stumbling block to those who I actually want to win, rather than the gospel itself becoming a stumbling block. As Reformed Christians, in our tradition, we love and we believe this passionately when it comes to the gospel, defending it, contending for it. And, and we actually have those in our denomination and in our circle. Man, they really, really excel at it. And as a result, you'll see oftentimes in several of the major, you know, impacting ministries that are maybe parachurch ministries, like let's say the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel and the National Association of Evangelists, all these, you'll see pastors or leaders from our denomination actually leading those ministries. This is, this is something that in our church denomination and heritage, we, we take very seriously. And some excel at it. But if we're not careful, we can come across as arrogant. 
and superior and better than everyone else because these attitudes easily take place and take seed in our heart. I heard an illustration one time that I thought helped me understand it. A pastor in a sermon gave an analogy, and he said, pretend for a moment that the gospel is a house, right? The gospel is a house. And in the, for this house, you're going to defend it. And there's really two types of defenders. You know, some people, uh, some traditions, they're, they're kind of like a cat that is assigned to guard the house. Those of you who are cat owners, I'm I'm not picking on you this morning, okay, right? But you know how cats are. I go up to a house by a cat owner, I knock on the door, you know, and the person opens, and the cat will come out and purr and rub against my leg and not know how close to death it's coming, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And it just welcomes me into the house with purrs and wants my attention and, and all that, right? That's one way that you can think about defending your house. I defend my house with a cat. And then there's the Rottweiler, <laughs> right? right? And then that dog, he, he barks and he warns and he guards and he'll even attack if necessary when somebody is coming around the house. Um, some churches, they take the, the cat approach. And as a result, the gospel gets compromised because <laughs> everything is allowed in. But in our Reformed churches, like our church, sometimes, if we're not careful, we are a guard dog, and that's good, but we become a little like the Rottweiler who gets off the chain and goes a little crazy and starts taking hunks out of people, right? And that's not good. Sometimes we throw in an uncle with a shotgun out in the front yard running around acting crazy, right? And it, and it ends up not just defending the gospel, it ends up running away people who need gospel restoration. And this happens when we forget what Paul says here, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. He, he faithfully proclaimed the gospel, but he did it in a winsome way. Write down that word, winsome. It's a word that has long been in our tradition. It's an important word because it guides how we engage. It reminds us that what we say and do is important, but how we say it is also important and how we do it is important. Our challenge is not just compromising the gospel. Our challenge is to do so in a way that is not ugly, not offensive, or to do so in a way that is actually winsome. Winsome means attractive intriguing, graceful, loving. That's what winsome is. So to contend, to present, live out the gospel in a way that draws people to Jesus rather than runs them away from Jesus, that's living a missional life, engaging the culture. Something that God has called us to do, right? Each of us to be on mission for him, engaging the various cultures in which he's placed us. So how does that happen? How do we do this? Let me finish out with just a couple of quick ideas. It starts with an ongoing personal encounter with the power of the gospel. That's where it starts. 
an ongoing daily personal encounter with the power of the gospel. Who is Jesus? We just talked about Epiphany and his baptism and God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In those same verses, it says, and Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't uh, compromise the truth, but Jesus was attractive and graceful and winsome and how he brought the truth to the people who needed to hear it. Isn't it interesting that all kinds of people gravitated to Jesus all across the spectrum. They all gravitated to Jesus. And what ended up offending them was not who Jesus, how he interacted, but his message. And that's okay if the truth drives somebody away, we understand that will happen, but don't let it be the way we communicate that truth, how we express it in our church and our worship services. Let it be just the objective truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. And if that drives someone away, then we pray for that person, but let it not be the way we bring that message to them. Jesus drew people to him. And so the more Jesus is in us, the more we will winsomely and faithfully engage our culture with the mission of our church because it won't be us working for Jesus, it'll be Jesus working through us. And that's why it starts right here. That ongoing personal encounter with the power of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. As he works through us, rather than us working for him, lives are changed, okay? One final idea for me personally, this is what is something that I, I work into my quiet time. Questions like this, some of these exact questions or in similar ways. I like to take a, a gut check I ask the Holy Spirit to open my eyes. Where am I at spiritually in this area? We're all gonna struggle with being on mission for Jesus Christ. Few of us find it easy. It's hard to engage the culture. And, and so part of, of my routines in my personal quiet time is I have to ask myself tough questions. And it leads to repentance because of the sin in my own life. Is there a arrogance and pride that I need to repent of. And that, and that one, yes, for what it's worth. There's often the answer is yes. Do I respect and love those who don't know Jesus? Do I ask questions and truly listen instead of arguing? Do I have a missionary mindset? Am I approaching my life like a missionary? Am I investing in the lives of unbelievers and inviting them into my, this last one, pray for me. This is hard. It's difficult. It's, it's easy for all of us to become so consumed with one another, which is a good thing to, to be a part of our life, that we forget those who are outside the family of God. Am I investing in the lives of unbelievers and inviting them into my life? You know, as a church body, I appreciate, I think, our desire to be a part of the mission. And I appreciate, you know, we, we're going through this transition, and, and yet the mission is being carried forward in our church. Even as we're going through building changes and building new kind, all this other stuff that we're ha is happening right now, the mission is still going forward. Friday morning, I, I woke up to an email, and it was just great to see 
one of our small groups, one of, led by our, one of our deacons and some of the brothers in our church, they, they took, uh, I think it's like 70 some odd box lunches to Lockmar Elementary for their in-service day. The teachers and staff could have lunch and just be blessed. So we could just say, we love you and we appreciate what you're doing for the families in our community. And it's a hard job right now to be a teacher, especially in COVID times, right? And it's just difficult. And I, I love the fact that our church and p- small groups in our church have adopted schools or adopted ministries and adopted families, and we're reaching out to the community. My prayer for us is that we will continue to do this, that God would continue to give us the creativity to see this is how you go. This is what I want you to do. Here's who I want you to engage with, and this is how you do it. Let's be in prayer. We got something new going on, right? We're doing Roar soccer this year, and we're gonna need some people involved in this because we're doing it down at the public school for the first time ever. This is so cool, right? That we're, we're, we're still holding tight to the purpose of Roar and how we communicate the gospel and we introduce families and children to Jesus, but now we get to do it in a different context in the fields of our public school right down the street. Let's pray that God continues to open up these kinds of opportunities for us as not only a church, but as individuals, okay? Father, thank you for the mission that you've given us as a church. I pray that you would help us. We thank you for doors that you have opened. Thank you for all the people who have invested in ministries and in schools and in different areas of need in our community, in our city. Lord, we ask that through this service and through these efforts, you would draw your children to you, that we would see people turn from a life of sin and rebellion and instead embrace you, Lord Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Father, help us to be winsome in what we do in all of these various ministries and the expressions that they take or our interactions as individuals. Let us be winsome. Give us the grace, the insight we need so that what we say is effective. And Father, give us a boldness that comes, can only come from you. It's so intimidating to engage oftentimes those who need Jesus. And we can do it in half portions or we can avoid it or just run from it sometimes. God, forgive us. Help us to be your ambassadors, to be ambassadors for Jesus that point people to the only hope that they have for eternal life. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.